0: Lesson number six is my passion because it is about revival and what revival really, really is. The one unique dimension of Christianity that separates and sets it apart from all the other religions of the world is it's based upon experience. It is based upon personal experience of people That have had an experience with God. Let me underscore that again. Intellectual academic study, intellectual, academic understanding in preparation for ministry will never be enough. Will never be enough. I went to seminary and some of my friends went on to earn PhDs and THDs in theology from prestigious universities like Cambridge and Oxford and England and Harvard and Yale and some of these big divinity schools. And yet some of my friends that earned a bachelor's degree and earned a master's degree and went on to THDs and PhDs, some of my friends of years ago are spiritually dead today. Out of the ministry, marriage has gone down the tube. I mean, just totally living a life that's messed up. And yet, intellectually, they can read the Bible in Hebrew, they can read it in Greek, they can discuss Ugaritic, they can discuss philosophy, they can discuss doctrine, they can discuss all the theological issues with all their ramifications. But they lack the one necessary ingredient that brings intellectual and academic understanding together, and that is to have an experience with God. The people, the men and the women that God is going to use In the 21st century church in ministry are not men and women that have vast resumes and impeccable academic preparation. As important as academics are, the men and women that God is going to use in the coming revival are men and women that He has touched by His glory and touched by His power. Who have studied to show themselves approved, have studied and have developed that aspect of their life, but the touch of God has been upon them. In the Old Testament, we find the pattern of God appearing unto people. In the New Testament, it was based upon the experiences of the disciples. I mean, brothers and sisters, remember with me, in the early days of the church, they didn't even have the Bible. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a system. Amazingly enough, they didn't even have Christian television. They didn't have video. They didn't have tapes. But what they did have was a testimony where the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and wouldn't sees and couldn't sees tried to persecute Peter and John over the testimony of Jesus. Peter replied that we can't help but talk about the things that we have both seen and heard. They had a testimony. And the thing that propelled the church in the early days of its existence was not correct doctrine. It was not correct theology. It was not organization and system and plans and programs, but it was men and women, ordinary people like you and I that had had an experience with God, that had gotten under an open heaven and God had come and touched them and visited them and changed them. Christianity is not a philosophy or a doctrine. It is based upon people who are experiencing God in their daily lives. I like to say that going to church should be an experience needing an explanation, not just an explanation needing an experience. Going to church needs to be an experience with God and not just an explanation that is totally void. Remember the illustration last evening about going to the steakhouse? We go to the steakhouse to eat. We go to the Olive Garden because we want to eat Italian. We go to the Red Lobster because we want to eat seafood. We go to Pizza Hut because we're hungry for a pizza. We don't go for information alone. We don't go just to have more understanding about food. I like to eat. Everybody does. Well, the world, because of that element in human personality that longs for original glory, just like they're bound by original sin, Is looking for a place to go that they can find the meeting of that need, that they can find that hunger in their heart for experience with God being satisfied. Thus we talk about revival. What is revival? Now let me repeat myself from an earlier session. Revival is always God's second choice. It's his second choice. God never intended for the church to slip into lethargy. He never intended for the church to become dead. He never intended for people to leave their first love. He never intended for the church to abandon and forsake the reality of His presence. That's what Jeremiah was speaking of in Jeremiah chapter 2 when he rebuked Israel and he said, My people have committed two evils. The first is they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And secondly, they have built for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God wants us to stay in his presence, to stay with what he's doing. He said, they've forsaken me the fountain of living water. My dear brothers and sisters, remember something. This is really profound. Buckle your seat belts, all seatbacks and tray tables in your upright and locked position. Get ready. Here it comes. The move of God moves. What God does is not a static, isolated, stationary, box it up, package it, wrap it, and sit on it. He's new every morning. He wants to reveal himself to us every day. I thank God for our testimonies of what God did in our hearts and in our lives yesterday, last week last month, last year. But the most exciting testimony is what he's going to do today and what's he going to do tomorrow and what's he going to do next week. And it's living in that realm of expectancy and understanding that God wants us to be moving on with him and experiencing him in an ever-increasing way. Therefore, revival was God's second choice, birthed out of his mercy, That when the church did backslide, when the church did forsake the fountain of living water and go build for themselves a broken cistern that could hold no water, God had a plan to bring them back to the fountain that they might drink from the river of God again. In Isaiah 64, one of my favorite scriptures of revival, is when Isaiah cried out to God. He said, oh God, rend the heavens, rend the heavens and come down, rend the heavens and come forth and manifest yourself. It was a prayer for revival. Now, you need to remember this. This is very, very important. Revival is not an organized, well-planned event orchestrated by people. It is a revelation of the glory of God's manifest presence touching people. It is always the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to remember something else. Man can stop revival, but man cannot start it. Man can stop a revival through a deliberate act of our will by quenching and grieving the holy spirit and shutting down and refusing to yield the right away to what god is doing. Man can stop it, but man cannot start it. It is always a sovereign move of the holy spirit that brings it about. Thirdly, revival has always been a part of the history of the church. It's not something new, it's not a fad It's not a movement. That night in that hotel room in Philadelphia when the glory of the Lord filled that place and God spoke to me in such a powerful way, he said, Son, it's not about a movement. It's about me. And in that moment I recognized that it was not a move of man. I knew that in my heart. But it's about the church's attitude toward his manifested presence in the 21st century. Revival has always been a part of the church's history. Wherever God's had a people... God has had an intervention by his presence, by his spirit, and by his glory. Go and read the accounts in the 1700s of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. John Wesley was an Anglican, wore a white collar. We've done meetings in England in Anglican churches and seen God come and move in a powerful way. John Wesley had a pedigree of great formal education, a graduate of Oxford, a brilliant mind very liturgical in his manner. And yet when John Wesley preached, it's all part of the historical record. People would literally fall out of their seats to the floor under the power of God. Now I spent four years in a Methodist seminary and I must have been absent the day that they taught about that because surely they didn't leave it out. But it is actually part of the record. One of John Wesley's contemporaries was a man by the name of George Whitefield. George Whitefield preached outside in the hills, in the open air, because the churches of England were not big enough to bring in the crowds. George Whitefield wrote by his own hand in his own diary of a particular Sunday afternoon in a place called Kilsyth. He wrote in his own hand. He said to this effect, he said, I saw 10,000 people suddenly, in a moment, stricken with the power of God. He said they were carried away as wounded from the battlefield. One of the hallmarks of George Whitfield's ministry is because he met outside, his meetings were outside, people would try to climb up in the trees in order to hear better or see better. George Whitfield learned from some bad experiences to put ushers around the trees and don't allow anybody to climb up in the trees Because he'd already found out sometimes when the glory of God came on the meeting, he didn't want people up in the trees because they'd fall on somebody or hurt themselves. I mean, that was the kind of glory that these men were walking in. That was the kind of revelation of the power and the presence of God that was part of their ministry. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon July the 8th, 1741 in Connecticut entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's one of the most famous sermons ever preached. You need to get a copy of that and read it. What many people don't know is that Jonathan Edwards was legally blind. He could only see a few inches and he preached from manuscript. And Jonathan Edwards on that Sunday night in July of 1741 had his manuscript before him like this so he could read it with one hand and a candle to illuminate it in the other. And yet the windows of heaven opened over the church in such a way that those that were there described it as being caught, like hanging in the middle, between heaven above and hell beneath. Women were fainting. Grown men were screaming in agony. It was an open vision of the glories of heaven and the horrors of hell. That sermon on that occasion sparked the beginning of the great awakening in America. What a lot of people don't realize, and I wish we had time to go into it in some detail, but our nation was birthed in revival. There was revival in the colonies in the 1740s, in the 1750s, in the 1760s. The presence of God was in the land. This nation America, and every time the wheels of the airplane touch the runway in America, I thank God to be home. I've been all over the world. There's nowhere anywhere like America. The secret to America's greatness is not in our intelligence. It's not because we got lucky. It's because we've been blessed. Even on our money, it says, in God we trust. And that was the mentality on which this nation was founded. In the 1800s, Charles Finney. We'll talk more about Charles Finney in another section. But Charles Finney saw entire cities saved by the power of God. And it was the revelation of holiness that followed Finney's meetings that brought about Great Reformation. Between 1857 and 1859, there was great revival in America. It was called the Great Prayer Revival. In a two-year period of time, over 10% of the people living at that time in America got saved. But the numbers are actually far greater than that simply because the revival was based primarily on the eastern seaboard. There were about 30 million people living in America in 1857, and 3 million of those got saved in a two-year period. Entire towns in New England had revival to come to them in such a measure that towns would stop everything they did every day at noontime to have noontime prayer meetings. The shops would close. The businesses would close. Everything would shut down. Over 200 towns and cities in New York State alone would stop to have prayer every day at noontime. In Washington, D.C., the Congress, the Senate, the Supreme Court, everything would be held in abeyance at 12 o'clock. Crowds of 5,000 or more would gather on the lawn of the Capitol for noontime prayer during those years. Newspaper reporters from cities like Washington and New York would travel up through New England, going from town to town and city to city, looking to find one person that wasn't saved and couldn't find them. So real was the revelation of the glory of God in those years. There are historical accounts of sailing ships coming from Europe, coming to seaports like New York and Boston and Philadelphia that had no satellite communication, did not have cell telephones, did not have any way of knowing what was going on. And yet ship after ship this phenomenon happened that when they got about 50 miles from the U.S. coastline, they reported it was like sailing into a cloud of the presence of God. Ships would come into New York Harbor and Boston Harbor and the first thing the captain would say to the attendants coming out to secure the ship is forget the ship, go get a pastor. The whole crew would be weeping in the presence of God, weeping under the power of God. It was like a canopy of God's presence that was hovering and brooding over our nation. One of my favorite revivalists was a woman by the name of Mariah Woodsworth Etter. You can read some of the accounts of her life in ministry in the Diary of Signs and Wonders produced by Harrison House. Mariah Woodsworth Etter would travel in the late 1800s, early 1900s, in covered wagons. She and her ministry team would travel to little towns all across Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, Kansas down to Texas, Arkansas, made a couple of trips out to California, made a trip down to Florida, a trip up to Boston. But they were revivalists. And Mariah Woodsworth Etter in her ministry would come into a town somewhere out in the Midwest and they would set up a big tent and she would just begin to preach and the heavens would begin to open. And they would have lengthy revivals lasting sometimes four to six weeks, two months, but before the meetings were over, my brothers and sisters, every church in town would be filled to overflowing and they would have to build additional churches in that city just to handle the crowds that had gotten saved. Now one of the interesting phenomenon about Mariah Woodsworth Edder's ministry was is she could be having revival meetings in a particular town out in the Midwest somewhere and when the meetings would be going on It's recorded passenger trains traveling through that town and stopping in the railway station in the middle of the night would see passengers streaming off the train into the railway stations, weeping under the power of God. Not knowing where they were, what town they were in, what state they were in, they would come streaming off the trains, weeping, and the railway employees would say, Just follow this road on out of town out here. There's a tent out there. You'll see some lanterns and lights and horses and buggies. And there's an old woman out there preaching. And this happens every night when the train comes through town. It was like an open heaven over the entire town. That people even riding passenger trains would be impacted by that. In the 1900s, the great Welch revival of 1904. I was just in Wales in September and went to Moriah Chapel which was ground zero of the great Welch Revival, where Evan Roberts, and I recommend that you read about the Welch Revival of 1904, where Evan Roberts and 17 teenagers gathered together to pray. And their prayer was this, Father, send the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. Send the Holy Spirit for Jesus' sake. They locked the doors. They warned the people in the prayer meeting, if you want to leave, go ahead and leave because in a few minutes we're going to lock the doors and we are going to stay here and we are going to pray until God comes. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Sometime in that night, the windows of heaven began to open over Wales and the glory of God began to descend and the revival, the great Welch revival was on. Church, it came like a river through the valleys of Wales. It was like a river, an unseen river that would come over entire towns. There were towns and cities in Wales that history tells us they had to lay off their police force for three years because the police had nothing to do. There was no crime. They had to close down courthouses because there were no trials. There were no cases to try because people had gotten saved. Bars closed up for lack of business. Gambling houses closed up for lack of business. Prostitution disappeared for lack of business. Rugby, soccer seasons were suspended. (laughs) Now that's a big event because of the Welch revival. Because the players didn't want to play. All they wanted to do was go to church. One of my favorite stories about the Welch Revival is Wales has a lot of coal mines. And because of the revival, they had to retrain the little donkeys and the little ponies that pulled the coal wagons out of the coal mines. They had to retrain them because of the revival, because all the coal miners had gotten saved and the little donkeys operated and obeyed verbal commands. And when all the coal miners got saved, they quit cussing. And the little donkeys and the little ponies didn't know what they were wanting them to do and so they had to retrain them. Now that's revival. I was just in Wales, as I said, in September just a couple of months ago and I was watching on television a big rugby game in Cardiff. Did you know to this day in the big stadiums, in this big stadium, the national stadium in Cardiff, before the rugby game began that all of these tens of thousands of people were singing hymns singing the great hymns of the church. Now, they might have had a can of beer in their hand while they were doing it, but they were singing the great hymns, the old great hymns of the church. To this day, it's part of the tradition of rugby in Wales as a remembrance to the days when they started playing rugby again before they started the games. All the people, because of the Welch Revival, would stand there in the stadiums and worship God and praise him and sing the great hymns of the church. The players, the coaches, the fans, everybody, that's revival. It's been said that one in four Christians alive in the world today can trace their spiritual origins back to that prayer meeting with Evan Roberts and 17 teenagers and the birth of the Welch revival. Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California, 1906. Go read the accounts of Azusa Street a little livery stable on a dirt alley in Los Angeles became ground zero of the largest Pentecostal revival ever to hit the continental United States. One of my favorite revivals was 1948, 1951. In a little string of islands called the Hebrides off the coast of Scotland through the ministry of a man by the name of Duncan Campbell, when the heavens opened and revival came to the Hebrides Islands, it was the presence of God that just came. Brothers and sisters, 75% of the people that got saved in the Hebrides revival were saved outside of churches. They were saved before they ever came to church because of the presence of God that was just hovering over the Hebrides islands. There were reports, 1948, 1949, of people walking into police stations in the middle of the night in their pajamas weeping under the power of God, coming to the police and saying to them, please help me. I was at home asleep in bed and the presence of God has filled my house. And now I understand I'm lost. I'm dying. I'm going to go to hell. I don't know what to do. And when you're in trouble, you're supposed to ask the police, can you tell me what I need to do? The police would actually send them to the churches to get saved. I believe there's a day coming I believe it with all of my heart. People will call 911. Can you imagine? 911, what is your emergency? I'm lost. I'm a sinner. Would you help me? Yes, go to such and such church. You can meet God there. We're going to see these kinds of things again. At Asbury College in 1970 in Wilmore, Kentucky, three college girls had been praying for three years for God to come and move. And on a chapel service at Asbury College on a Tuesday morning, the heavens opened and the glory of God came. Go and read about the Asbury Revival and how for nine days the heavens were opened over this small Christian liberal arts college in Kentucky. One of the strange phenomena of that revival is total strangers would drive into Wilmore, Kentucky and have the strange urge to take off their shoes because of the holiness of God that was being demonstrated. It was written about in all the major United States newspapers. A wonderful segment was done on the NBC nightly news on what was going on in Wilmore, Kentucky in 1970. In the 1980s, the great revival that swept Argentina, primarily through the ministry of a man by the name of Carlos Anacondia, where God's presence and God's glory came in great, great power. Of course, in recent years, the Brownsville revival in Pensacola, Florida, where God came on Father's Day 1995 i guess it was 1996 in such a profound way in toronto ontario that revival continues to this day at the toronto airport christian fellowship after all of these years over 4 million people have been to toronto it's interesting that the word toronto comes from a native canadian indian word means place of meeting And isn't it interesting that God chose a city named Toronto that means place of meeting, to be a place to bring the world, to meet with Him in revival and in His glory. In the 2000s, there are revivals and manifestations of the glory all over the world. Now, very quickly, I want us to look together at experiences commonly seen in people during times when the glory of God is being revealed in revival. And when His glory comes, these are some of the things that happen. One of the first is an overwhelming conviction of sin resulting in repentance, an overwhelming sense of sinfulness. We've come to make sin such a light thing in many quarters. But the Holy Spirit, remember this about the Holy Spirit, He is the Holy Spirit. And when He is revealed unholiness and unrighteousness, and sinfulness is going to be exposed and it is going to become very, very, very uncomfortable for people. And people are either going to run and flee and seek to get away from the revelation of God, get away from the glory of God, or they are going to be drawn to Him and they will come and repent in the glory. Secondly, is people being filled with a great sense of peace and well-being. We see this in our meetings all across America and in churches many times when the presence of God comes of people just report this incredible, indescribable peace and well-being in His presence. Thirdly is a manifestation of people being filled with the joy of the Lord. We've seen that in recent years of holy laughter when people will be touched by God and for no natural explanation Just be filled with joy. Some people say, well, that's fanaticism. I say, well, the Bible says in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy, the Scriptures tell us. The Scriptures tell us that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I believe personally that's what was going on on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, they accused the disciples and those in the upper room of being drunk with new wine. I believe they were just laughing. I believe they were just intoxicated in the presence of God in that place. A fourth manifestation is weeping. Weeping. Either caused by sorrow over sin or weeping for joy in the presence of God. Fifthly, the reverential fear of God. This is what happened in Charles Finney's meetings Go read the books and the records of the life of Charles Finney. It's a fascinating study. Charles Finney would get up and preach and the glory would come and people would begin to weep in the presence of God. And Charles Finney would many times literally have to go to people and tell them, now everybody calm down, you're not in hell yet. You can still repent. But usually by the time it got to that point, the people were so out there weeping over the presence of God and the fear of God upon them. By the time it got to that point, Charles Finney couldn't do any more with them. He couldn't even give an invitation for people to get saved. He'd have to go through the church and say, Wait a minute, brother, brother, quit crying, quit crying. Hey, hey, it's all right. Pray this prayer after me. And he had to lead them to the Lord one at a time because the place was in such an uproar. It was the fear of the Lord that came in Finney's meetings in such a wonderful way. It's interesting to note, however, that studies showed that 25 years later, 25 years later, 78% of the people that got saved in Charles Finney's meetings were still actively serving God in church. No other evangelist has ever seen such a rate of retention Why? Because people had experienced the holiness of God. Oh, God, do it again. Let your glory come in the church again. That people be touched with the holiness and that we develop a passionate love while at the same time a holy respect and a holy fear. Oh, God, send the anointing that was on the life of Finney again upon the church. We get rid of all the greasy grace and the sloppy agape and the Living by grace and taking that to interpret to mean we can do anything we want to do and live any way we want to live. But hallelujah, I'm a king's kid. It's all right. Beloved, he's a holy God. A sixth manifestation of the revelation of the glory is weakness, the inability to stand what has been termed being slain in the spirit or drunkenness, falling under the power of God. This has always been a part of revival. It was found in the Old Testament. It was found in Jesus' ministry. You say, where in Jesus' ministry? The Bible says when they came to arrest him in Gethsemane. If you read John's account, Jesus was there in Gethsemane. And they came and he said, who are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. What was he saying when I am he? That's a revelation of the glory. The Bible says they all fell backwards to the ground under that revelation of glory. It's found in the New Testament and we see it today in revival. People ask me sometimes, when you pray for them, why do people fall down? The best explanation I've ever heard is they simply can't stand up. We'll just leave it at that. Seventhly, worship and singing. The Welch Revival was particularly known for this. With every great revival, with every great opening of the heavens, every great revelation, there comes a new generation of worship music. A new generation of people longing to express their love and adoration for God and worship. Signs and wonders will accompany revival. What are signs and wonders? Signs and wonders are things that God does. They're signs that make people wonder. They're supernatural manifestations of the glory of God that cause people to be awakened and realize the reality of His presence. One of the signs and wonders that followed the Azusa Street Revival Los Angeles in 1906 was fire on the roof of the building. Many times in those nightly meetings in Azusa Street, the Los Angeles Fire Department would be called and they would come. After they'd done it so many times, they didn't rush anymore because they knew what it was. But they could literally see flames. People in that region of the city would see flames of fire dancing on the roof of Azusa Street. Well, that's a sign that's a wonder that gets people's attention. Trances and visions happen under an open heaven. People have visions. People have experiences with God. Tenthly, is many times people lose all awareness of time while in the glory. Remember, Moses was in the glory for 40 days and 40 nights. and never ate, never drank. It was like everything was suspended. Most churches operate like... I heard about a church a couple of weeks ago that advertised that they could do an entire church service in 22 minutes from start to finish. They could do praise and worship. They could do the announcements. They could do the offering. They could do the sermon. And they could close 22 minutes. And they were bragging about that. Why? I'd be ashamed. Because you see, when His glory is there, His presence is coming. You know, why do we compartmentalize all of this? I've never heard anybody get upset that the Super Bowl went into overtime, that the World Series had to go into extra minutes. When God's people love His glory and love His presence, they're not going to be so preoccupied that we've got to get out of here. They just want to stay and they want to linger. In our own ministry, one of the problems that we have in the meetings, wherever God sends us, is not to get people to come to the meetings. Our problem is to get them to go home, (laughs) trying to get people to go. Why? Because the glory is there in that place. Eleventhly, in revival, there will be the activity of angels. In the Welch revival, there were actually angelic choirs, choirs of angels, the voice of angels and music of angels that would resonate over the valleys of Wales. I have a pastor friend in Canada whose mother and father were both teenagers in the Welch revival in 1904. And tell the story of traveling at night from one village to another and going up on the top of a mountain on a little road two o'clock in the morning sitting there for two hours and weeping miles from the nearest church and yet literally hearing choirs of angels singing worship over the valleys of Wales. You see, angels are always part of an open heaven. Revival is caused by the Holy Spirit's manifested presence. And secondly, The frequency and intensity of revival is always increasing. The frequency and intensity of revivals are always intensifying. A woman that is about to give birth to a baby begins to have mild contractions. But the closer she comes to the actual birth of that baby, the greater the labor pains, the more severe the contractions become, and the closer the intervals are, right up till that time. Historically, that's what we see as a pattern in revival. There were more revivals in the 1800s than there were in the 1700s. There were more revivals in the 1900s than there were in the 1800s. There were more revivals in the second half of the 1900s than God had done in the entire 1900 years prior to the mid-1900s combined. And as we move along, we see the lessening of the intervals of time between revivals and we see the increasing intensity Now remember something. God will never do less tomorrow than he did yesterday. The revelation of God is always progressive. Now I live in Florida. We went through four major hurricanes this summer. And The interesting part of a hurricane is that it just doesn't blow up at one moment like a tornado. Where one minute it's not there and the next minute it is. There's a progression into a hurricane of these spiral bands, this outflow that comes out from the eye of the storm and how that it would begin with just a few clouds passing quickly by and then it intensifies to heavier clouds and the wind begins to pick up and then another spiral band proceeding out from the eye of the hurricane will come and every one of these successive bands is greater than the one that came before it. And the closer you get to the eyewall of that hurricane, the greater the velocity of the wind, the greater the intensity of the hurricane, and the shorter the intervals are between those spiral bands. Until the closer we get to the eyewall, it is just one raging, continuous storm leading right up to the eyewall of that hurricane. The world has been experiencing revival for several hundred years. But those first revivals that we speak of in the 1600s and the 1700s, that was the outer bands. And the closer we come to the second coming of Jesus, the greater those spiral bands of glory are going to become. The greater that revelation of God and His power is going to be until we come to that place that finally He has revealed in the earth. Most revivals historically last between 18 months and three years. And then the church lives in the afterglow and runs on the momentum of that revival for several decades until God comes, opens the heaven, and does it again. The present day that we're living in is very unique because in our generation, God is building such an incredible depth of understanding of revival, of His presence, of His anointing, of His power and glory. We've been seeing God moving all over the world now since the late 1980s. The 1990s was a decade of worldwide revival, but not in the classic sense of revival in that we've not seen major multitudes of people coming in to be saved. Now, more people are being saved every day than have ever been saved before in history. But as far as a mass infusion in a moment, we've not seen that yet. The reason I believe that that is the case is God is building such a profound understanding and such a depth of understanding beneath this coming move of God that He's going to send because He doesn't want it aborted. He doesn't want it goofed up like people have goofed up past revivals. He wants a church to arise in the earth not built about one man, one group, one woman, one movement. But he wants a broad base of people, a broad base of churches out there that understand his glory, understand his presence, love his presence and his spirit in order that we yield to him to bring the great revival that he wants to see. Revival is coming. Let's get ready. Amen.